Let's just take a moment and pray as we go into the word. Lord God, I just thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you that we are um, wanting to be the church that you've called us to be. And so this morning, help us to hear from you. Lord, we're thankful that it's Palm Sunday, Lord, and we can have a little fun with palm crosses, but to remind ourselves, Lord, of this incredible moment in history. So we just uh, come before you and we worship you. We say, Hosanna, Hosanna, be king here in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to take you on a little bit of a journey today. Uh, some sermons are very uh, heady and intellectual, and we get into the Bible and Greek words and Hebrew words and all that sort of thing. Some are more practical, like do this, do this, do this. Others are more emotional, maybe, that have, you know, invoke a heart reaction. But today's sermon I'm calling an Impressionist Painting. And if you see an Impressionist painting, you know that there's, it doesn't make a lot of sense often close up. You see a lot of lines and swooshes and paint, paint, um, you know, paint brush uh, movements on the thing. But you can't really understand the painting until you back up, right? And then you see kind of the picture emerge. And that's what I'm going to have us do today with Palm Sunday. I know many of us, if you've been in church, know the story of Palm Sunday. Jesus coming on a donkey, riding through Jerusalem to praise um, but what does this mean? Why is this important? And a lot of this has to do, interestingly, with the land. And so since Paul and I just came back from Israel, I'm going to show you a few things about the land. But this is the promised land. There's a map here uh, that we went to see, Israel. And if you can see in the middle, there's the West Bank, there's Gaza, so there's, there's, and then there's Israel all around it. This is the land. Um, that was talked about in the Bible. And of course, there's a lot of political chaos there now. There's a lot of discussion about what, what should be happening there now. And I'm not going to get into any of that. But what I do want to remind us is that this is the, this is the land that, that God talks about in the Old Testament. That this is an actual place. It's physical land. Um, and he talks about this is the place where um, Abraham and was promised a, prom a, a, a land and a, and a family that they were going to build in this place. He it was also promised to Moses as Moses came through uh, and, and brought them right up to the edge of the land, and then Joshua brought them into the land. It's a beautiful land. I want to show you just a few pictures here from our trip. The first one is of Jerusalem, uh, this big city now. It's a big, uh, thriving city, but it's always been an important place uh, in, this, in this country. The next picture shows you... Um, the West Bank, the Judean countryside, gorgeous countryside. We just drove through mile after mile after mile, beautiful countryside, some of it very stark, some of it very lush. The next one shows you kind of that, that contrast, right? These stark mountains, wilderness mountains, but then the lush green valleys. This is well, all throughout Israel. This is going north to the Jordan River. And another picture here um, is of modern-day Jericho, which is, you know, a big thriving city, a gorgeous place. Um, the, the actual city of Jericho we saw, you know, it's just a tiny little, the, you know, the ancient city that they marched around seven times. It's just a tiny little spot. Now it's this huge, sprawling city. Um, and I think there's one more, um, which is in Galilee. This is toward the north. It's very rural. It's almost tropical looking with all the palm trees and, 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 the, and of course, the lake. So it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous country. And this is the country that God promised in the Old Testament. It's the country that held the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, it is the one where the prophets spoke about a Messiah to come. And he was going to come to this land and speak to them. It was also a place that was spoken that they would lose if they fall away from the Lord, if they did not follow him, um, that there was going to be destruction on this land. This all happened here. And as our professor liked to say on this trip, uh, my professor from Gordon-Conwell, he'd like to say, the land is a character in the story. 
just as much as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and all those people are characters, so is the land. It's an important part of the story. And this is also the land that, if we go to the next slide, there's a, a again, we're back to the map again. This is a, uh, the land that was split in half years and, you know, thousands of years ago when the, when the kings fought and they couldn't agree. And so then there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom got taken over by Assyria. The southern kingdom taken over by Babylon. And so this is the, the land that was split in half and lost. It's also the land that the prophets promised that they'd be able to return to and rebuild. And they did for a time. Nehemiah and Ezra, they came back and they rebuilt for a time. But it's also the land where people continued to walk away from the Lord and follow other gods and ignore the word of God. And so the land and the people was lost through war, conquest, exile, the destruction of, the t of even the temple. And so now today we have this incredibly uh, confusing land, right, um, uh, where there's a Muslim shrine which sits where the temple used to be. Uh, there's a picture of Paul and I. We are right outside the temple mound, and that where the shrine is there, where the gold dome, that would have been the temple. We're standing in what would have been the court of the Gentiles, <laughs> where the Gentiles could have stood. So that's how big that whole area is. Um, it's also a place, and, and so people come to worship of all faiths, right, um, in this area. And then... The next slide shows you the Wailing Wall, right? A place where especially Jewish people come and they pray and they pray for the Messiah to come. This spot on the wall is as close as you can get to the Holy, where the Holy of Holies would have been, which is why they pray on this part of the wall. And they pray there and they're praying for the Messiah. They're praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And it's into this land, this land of promise, this land of wilderness and lush valleys, this land of years and years of God moving, and speaking, and then 400 years of silence, that we believe the Messiah did come. See, there's been a longing in this land all along for the Messiah to come, for there to be peace, for there to be prosperity in God's way. And we believe the Messiah has come, that Jesus has come. So what's my point? What's my point with all of this? My point is that when Jesus came and walked in this land, he was walking over thousands of years of God already moving, God moving through his people, promising his people, and Jesus was like layering on top of it. This is what was so surprising to us when we went to Israel is, is you know, I guess I knew it maybe somewhere in my brain, but didn't quite realize that all those places you hear about in the Old Testament are the same places in the New Testament. That where God moved with the Old Testament and with the, old, with the tribes and all those places are the same places that Jesus trod and that Jesus walked and that Jesus brought redemption and newness and a new covenant. What was, could have been seen as a failure from before Jesus said, no, I'm coming again. I'm that re-God. I redo things. I redeem and I reappear and here I am in this place. And so there's history in this, in, in this place and it was fascinating to see. And so what I want to do with, with um, the story of Palm Sunday is let you see a little bit of the history behind some of the locations that Jesus was in and why it was important that he actually rode on a donkey into Jerusalem why this moment was so important in his life. So just bear with me, step back, <laughs> like, like you're looking at an impressionist painting. Let, I want to just give you some impressions of the land, of the place where Jesus trod. And we're going to start way back at the beginning. We're going to start at Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. So this is, you know, we could be talking about this at Christmas, but I decided to talk about it now. So we're going to talk about it now. Um, because we were in Bethlehem, and I, uh, the next picture, I think, is a picture of Bethlehem. This is modern Bethlehem. Looks like any city with cars and people. And it even has Starbucks knockoffs. If you go to the next page. <laughs> Square bucks and stars and bucks. <laughs> I, 
have this image of the shepherds like going to visit Jesus and then going to get a latte, you know, like awesome, like right there. So that's what it's like now. But this place has a lot of promise and a lot of meaning that I didn't even understand until we got there. First of all, Rachel, was bo- Rachel Jacob's wife, the kind of the mother of Israel, was born very near Bethlehem. So we know that her, her, um, her burial place was there. It was also allotted to the tribe of Judah back as part of his inheritance. But then when you get to the fields outside of Bethlehem, this is something I didn't realize until we were there, as of the fields where the t- shepherds were tending their flocks and had a visitation from the angel is the same field that belonged to Boaz. Now, if you know the book of Ruth, all right, back in the Old Testament, this is a thousand years before Jesus even came in the time of the judges. Ruth was a, 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 a woman from Moab who was a widow. She had her mother-in-law, Naomi, who was a Jewish woman. They were both widowed. They were in Moab. They came back to Naomi's hometown, which was Bethlehem. And they had uh, Naomi sent her, her daughter-in-law out to glean in Boaz's fields. Boaz's fields are the same fields where the shepherds tended their flocks. And so it was in that field that Ruth gleaned from the fields. It was a way that God provided for the poor, that the wealthy would leave bits of grain, leave around the edges of the field so that the poor could come and receive from that. And so she was receiving from that. And if you read that wonderful book of Ruth, Boaz redeems Ruth, he marries her, gives her a new name, and they end up, by the way, being the great-grandparents of King David, who will come a little bit later, and incidentally in the lineage, therefore, of Jesus. So God does this incredible work of redemption in Bethlehem, in the fields, right side of Bethlehem. So now it's not surprising that also, a few generations later, we're going to see David tending his sheep where? in the fields outside of Bethlehem. Where do you think he wrote all those psalms? Where do you think he learned to sling a slingshot at the, at the lions to protect his sheep? Right here in the same place. Do you see how the land is a character in the story? And so it's right here that Samuel is told by the Lord, go there, and I'm going to tell you who's going to be king. Go to Bethlehem. And so he goes to Bethlehem. And um, it says in Samuel 16, 1, Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And if you know the story, Samuel calls all, or actually Jesse calls all his sons before, Je- uh, before Samuel, and Samuel says, no, nope, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him. Got any more? It's not any of these sons. He says, well, there's one other one out in the fields, out in the fields outside of Bethlehem, same fields where Boaz and Ruth met. And so he says, bring him in. And of course, he sees David and knows He's going to be king. And so it says, and in one of the very few places in the Old Testament where you see a specific case of the Holy Spirit coming upon a person, it says, from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel anointed him to be king. Right there, in Bethlehem. David, who was a shepherd in the fields outside of Bethlehem. And finally, in Micah 5, we see that our prophet, many, many hundreds of years later, says this, and this one you do hear all the time at Christmas time. He says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of the brothers return to join the, the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord of God, and they will be, live securely, for the, his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. 
So it's in this land where Rachel was buried, where Judah had his inheritance, where, where uh, Boaz redeemed Ruth, where David was anointed king and was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is where Jesus was born. Do you see what God is doing? Layering history upon history upon history on this one location. He's the re-God, redeeming, repeating his good work of grace over and over again in the same place. So we'll notice, notice how he does this over and over again. So in those same fields, of course, that's where the angels appeared overhead and declared this to a bunch of very, very startled shepherds. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. If you show the next picture, it's of these fields outside of Bethlehem. And I stood there and I cried when I started to realize what God had done in just this place. Is there anything special about this place? I don't know. But God did incredible things in that place. He was layering his salvation and his redemption and his grace, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace in this place until the, the angels came out. And I just could imagine standing in an ordinary field and then there's angels. I mean, see the significance of Jesus and his birth did not start in first century Bethlehem. It went back thousands of years before. So let's go to another location. That's the first location, Bethlehem. Let's go to the Mount of Olives. So we were at the very beginning of Jesus' life. Now this is toward the very end of Jesus' life. We're getting closer to Palm Sunday now in this particular story. And the Mount of Olives is actually kind of more, the, uh, more of a hill than a mountain. And when I saw it, I was like, that's the Mount of Olives? Um, it's just, that's it. Like, that's all it is. It's just kind of this hill. Lots of uh, gravestones on the hill because um, in the rabbinical midrash, they believe that when the Messiah comes, he will raise them from the dead uh, from, from Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives. So they, they want to be buried there so they're close to the action when it happens. Um, and so there's a lot of Jewish graves there. Um, I'm standing in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount when I'm taking this picture. So we're so close to Jerusalem right now. And you go down into the Kidron Valley and then up to the Mount of Olives. It's just right there. It's right there. I think the next picture also shows you. I was on the, there I am on the, on the temple steps, and you can see the Mount of Olives is right there. So it's very, very close. I didn't really quite realize that. Um, what's significant about the Mount of Olives? Well, in the Bible, it signifies both a place of struggle and a victory. It kind of has both linked together. And I want to take you back now again to David, right? We're now after David's been anointed as king, but he hasn't quite, uh, he kind of has the kingship, but then his son Absalom rises up to try to take this, the kingship away from him. And so what happens in 2 Samuel, while David was, sing, um, was king, he realized that he was not going to win over Absalom, his son, and so he says to his household, we've got to get out of Jerusalem. We've got to get out of here. And so they run out of Jerusalem, down the Kidron Valley, into, onto the Mount of Olives. It, sa it says at one point he sends some of the officials back with the Ark of the Covenant, but in 2 Samuel 13 it says this, But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. It was a place of defeat. Wasn't he supposed to be king? Wasn't he anointed as king? Wasn't he filled with the Spirit? And yet here he is, he's, he's weeping. He doesn't know if he's, um, what's going to happen to him. And what's interesting um, is the donkeys also appear in this story. 
which I hadn't really quite realized. If you go a just a little bit ahead to Samuel, first, uh, 2 Samuel 16, it says, Then when David had gone a short distance, so he's been weeping up the side of the hill, when he got, got just above the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. And the king asked Ziba, Why have you, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and the fruit are for the men to eat, and the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. So get this, and I want you to follow me closely here. A thousand years before Christ, this is when this is taking place, we see a king rejected by some as the true king, the forces of the world arrayed against him, betrayed by one of his closest people, walking and weeping on the Mount of Olives. And yet, for those who recognize him as a true king, he is given a donkey to ride and honored as the king. And in that moment, it looks like he's going to be defeated by evil and darkness. Does, you can't see how in the world this is all going to end up for good, but he overcame the evil and the darkness and took his rightful place. Does this sound like anybody to you? You cannot make this stuff up. Okay, this was written so long before the time of Christ. I just, I'm blown away the more I learn about the Lord, about the Bible, about his land, all taking place on the Mount of Olives. So enter Jesus, the rightful king, also not recognized, also betrayed by a friend, rejected by the world, also walking and weeping on the mountain. It says that as he stood on the Mount of Olives, he wept, he looked out and wept over Jerusalem. So just as that picture showed me at, on Jerusalem looking up to the Mount of Olives, he is on the Mount of Olives looking to Jerusalem. And he's weeping over Jerusalem. And he says, even if you, if you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He's weeping over Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. He also prayed in anguish on the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross, knowing what was happening. It says that he, he, he prayed earnestly with his sweat like drops of blood falling in the ground. You know where the Garden of Gethsemane is? On the Mount of Olives, of course, <laughs> on the side of the mountain. That's where that garden is. And Jesus would also ride down the Mount of Olives on a, on a donkey, much like the rightful king David. In the ancient Middle Eastern world, kings rode on a horse if they were going to war, but they rode on a donkey if they were coming in peace. So it was not odd for him to ride on a donkey. King Solomon rode on a donkey when they were coming in peace. So that's what Jesus was doing, even though they all mistook it, right? They all thought he was going to come to conquer Rome, but he's coming on a donkey to bring peace. And so we have this prophecy that's fulfilled through Jesus when he comes on that donkey. It's from Zechariah, again, hundreds of years before Jesus actually comes. Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So in fulfillment of all of that, you have Palm Sunday. When he comes and he is on that donkey, and we got our little palm branches, right? But they, this is what happened, but this is what was behind it. He's walking on hundreds of years of God moving and God loving his people and God redeeming his people and, and bringing victory out of what looked like defeat. This is what God does. And here's one more little point about Mount of, the Mount of Olives. 
after the resurrection, okay, after the whole thing is over, when Jesus is getting ready to ascend back to heaven, he commissions his disciples, he tells them the Holy Spirit's coming, and that he's going to come back. Guess where that all happens? On the Mount of Olives, of course. And so it says here in Acts 1, Jesus speaking, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So it all happens right there. Again, the land is a character in the story, and God is going to bring him back to us as well. So now, I've given you all this history. I've given, painted this big painting for you. Now we're going to read the triumphal entry. <laughs> now we're going get to actually get to the text uh, of what we are looking at today, what actually we're celebrating today. But I want you to be thinking about the history and what God has done through the centuries in this place, in this person of Jesus. And so I'm going to start reading from Luke 19. Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany on the hill, on the, to the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say the Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them as they were untying the colt. Its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Luke adds here in his gospel that some people cut branches from the trees and spread them on the roads. Where he came near the place to where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I love what Jesus says. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Hallelujah. 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 I want to just show you the road, if we can get that video up, of that is, this is the road walking down the Mount of Olives that possibly Jesus would have come down on that donkey. You see the gravestones to the left. Um, but, you know, it would have had some stone walls. It would have, you know, not been completely unlike this walking down the road. This is maybe where palm branches were spread and cloaks were thrown down. This is, it happened in reality, in a real place but with so much history behind it, with God's working through his kingdom, through his people. And so we know what followed this story. He came into Jerusalem. They thought that he was going to overthrow the Romans finally. They're all excited about that. He, one of the first things he did is he came down this road and he went into Jerusalem and into the east gate probably of Jerusalem and up to the temple. One of the first things he did was cast out all the money changers out of the temple, overturn the tables. So he's acting real, you know, like a king, right? Like he's taken over the place. But we all know what happened later, right? He met with his disciples. He was arrested and he was beaten and he was tried and then he was crucified. And so it seemed like darkness was getting the upper hand again much as it may have felt for David many years ago. Let me just say this to you. If you go to the grocery store and you see a big pile of fresh corn ready for you to buy, you know something. 
you know that that corn didn't just appear. You know that some guy somewhere, a woman somewhere, bought a piece of land, cleared it to plant. This, this person uh, you know, furrowed the ground and then planted seed, sowed it carefully, made sure that it got watered. They tended the little seedlings as they came up, made sure there were no, no pests, no weeds around those seedlings. They cared for that plant until it began to be a stalk, and then suddenly the fruit came out and the corn was gone. And then even then, even once it's all grown, then they have to cut it down and break off the ears of corn, and then it ends up in your grocery store. God's a master gardener, and nothing he does is by mistake. He has been working on redeeming this world for a very long time. The seeds go back generations and generations, thousands and thousands of years ago. The fields have been prepared, the seeds sown, the plants tended and watered, and the harvest has come. The timing of Jesus coming and his birth was planned. His life and the life of he did of miracles. We didn't even get to talk about all the miracles he did and all the, the things he did in his life. But that was all planned. His entry into Jerusalem was planned. He left this earth and will be coming back. We can count on that. That was planned. Our God is in control. And he's the king. That's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. In the line of David, a redeemer like Boaz, the answer to the covenant of Abraham, creator of the whole world. Can we just worship for a second? Can we say thank you, Jesus? You are great. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. There's no one like you, God. You are the center of it all, going back thousands and thousands of years and will be to however many thousand years it takes until he comes back. Hallelujah. So I got all this down. And I was like, okay, so what do we take away? <laughs> I gave you this beautiful and precious painting, and that maybe is enough, right? To just walk away with this impression of what God's been doing and what these stories that we read in the Bible mean in location and, in, and over history. But that'll give me just a couple of really practical points to just give you briefly as I end here. The first thing I want you to remember is that God's plans are really, really big. You're part of a really big kingdom with a big plan, and you're part of that. And I know sometimes that's hard to remember when you're in the middle of your very small life, but it's still kind of a problem, your life, right? And there's problems, and there's finances, and there's kids, and there's jobs, and there's problems in your, in your little life. Admittedly, it's a little life, right, compared to this whole big thing. But you're like, okay, what about that? But God is in charge of the whole big thing. He's very big. And he's not worried about your small problems, okay? He loves you, and he's caring for you, and he's going to walk you through it. But as anybody who's been through a problem in life and then looked back on it 10 years later, you're like, okay, I made it. <laughs> I made it. God helped me. God is there with you. If you're having trouble with a lot of little mice, you just need one big cat, right? <laughs> you got the line of Judah, all right? He's not worried about the mice in your life. He is walking you on a very big journey and you're part of a big story and so that should just give you hope in the midst of our small trials we say lord you are you're the lord of all of this lord help me in this small thing help me lord you're you're capable you're capable you love us nothing is too big for him so trust your king trust your king the second thing i sense god saying to me is that god keeps his promises 
So many promises, so many prophecies from all the time that God did from Abraham to Isaac and Jacob and and David and and all these things that Jesus fulfills. We could just spend all day talking about all the promises fulfilled in Jesus. And so this is the kind of God we serve. He's a promise keeper. And so he's going to keep his promises to you. What promises has he made to you? I got news for you. There's like 3,000 promises for you in this this Bible. I'll just give you a couple. He promises salvation. He says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You never have to doubt where you're going to go after you die. You never have to doubt if you have God with you now, that he is saving you now and will save you in that day. You will never need to doubt. That's a promise. He also promises his constant love and presence. Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Does it sometimes feel like he's far away? Who shall separate us? I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor children or jobs or finances or anything else, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. He's never leaving you. He loves you, and he's never leaving you alone. The promise of provision, Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and your body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not so much more valuable than they? Are you struggling with provision, wondering if that bills are going to be paid, if God's going to take care of you? He will. You never have to doubt that. He takes care of the sparrows, and he's going to take care of you. And finally, the promise of freedom, Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. God is a freedom bringer. He's a freedom bringer. He's been faithful through generations. He's going to be faithful to you. The last point that I want us to note from all of this that I've told you is that God brings victory out of our struggles. And so much as David wept on the Mount of Olives, wondering if he'd ever really be king, as Jesus wept over Jerusalem and and cried out in pain, knowing what was ahead of him, and yet when when everything seemingly had gone awry and Jesus was crucified and he was dead and what was going to happen next, yet we know that Jesus brought salvation through that very moment, that he was winning a victory in that moment because Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. Okay, he rose from the dead, and he now is, is giving you and me new life in him. That there's victory, even in the struggle. Even in the struggle. There's no greater victory than what Jesus did, and he's bringing victory in your life too. You may be in a struggle right now. And I just want you to think about Jesus. I want you to think about David. I want you to think about the Mount of Olives and Bethlehem and how God has got it in his hands. He is the king. He's bringing victory out of your struggles. So welcome, Jesus, the king, today. Welcome, Jesus, the king. Wave your palm branch. If there remains a doubt in your mind whether he's real or not, he is. He's the king. He's fulfilled his promises to you. And let's remember to to trust him as our king. Trust him that he's with us all the time. Trust that he's bringing salvation. Trust him that he's bringing victory out of your struggle. That he's got it in hand. He's been in charge for an awfully long time. And he's going to stay in charge. Nothing's getting him off the throne. Hallelujah. So let's just pray.
I'm going to invite this team to come back up. You can invite the, the communion service to come up. We get a chance to take communion today. So I want us to just take a moment and just close our eyes. And ask ourselves today, where is it I'm having a hard time seeing Jesus as king? Where am I having a hard time seeing him as Lord? Where do I need the Lion of Judah? And I would say to you today that some of us maybe have never experienced Jesus as king. Maybe we've never really trusted him. We know about Jesus. We've been to church. But it could be that we have never said, I want you, Lord Jesus, to be king of my life. And so I'd like to take just an opportunity here, if that's you today. There's no better day than the first day of Holy Week. Say, I'm going to try this. I want to start to follow Jesus. I believe that he's the Son of God, and I know I need him. I need a king in my life, a king that's all-powerful, who has all things in his hands. So I invite you to just Hand your heart to Jesus this morning. And I think of all of us who, in various ways, whether we're walking with Jesus or not, we're, we struggle. We struggle to believe that God's in charge. We struggle to believe that he's, he's going to keep his promises to us. We struggle to believe that, that our struggles are going to end up in victory. And so this morning, we just say, be the king of my heart. Be the king of my heart, Lord. He will never let you down. 